Psalm 103, I'd like to read a few verses as we begin this morning at the end of the chapter. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his host, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Father, you are sovereign, not only over man and woman and the earth, but over the universe. And Father, we know it is all of your making, of your creation. And as we consider the works of your hands, how great they are, we just begin to get a little inkling of who you really are. Father, we're thankful that, is, that we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we pray that this day our hearts will be filled with faith, that we truly, literally will be those who are doing your will each and every day. We invite you to be present here this hour, even as you have promised to be, and to touch our lives according to your will, to instruct us from your word, to draw us together as men and women dedicated to advancing the kingdom of God. And Lord, may that be our vision, may that be our hope, and we'll trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 5, I would like to begin reading at verse 6. Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. And they said to David, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame shall turn you away, thinking, David cannot enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Therefore they say, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the Milo and inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord God of hosts was with him. We noted as we read the first part of that chapter last week that uh, David was looking for a place to have as his capital city. And he didn't want to appear to be a favor to favoring one particular tribe over others. He could have kept Hebron as his capital, but Hebron, as we noted last week, is far off center from the kingdom, being as Hebron is way down in the south down here. And even though Jerusalem isn't a great deal further north, it is on the border between the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. He also wanted a city that would provide adequate protection. And Jerusalem at that time was situated in such a way that it was a very powerful citadel, which of course, as we noted, was already inhabited by the, inha uh, the Jebusites. And the Jebusites had been in the city for hundreds of years. And even after the conquest uh, took place under Joshua and throughout the era of the city of Judges, the city pretty much remained except for a short period of time when the Judeans did capture the city, but they didn't follow up on their capture by occupying it and holding it, and, allow, and they allowed it to lapse back into the hands of the Jebusites. All of that, you know, you think about that for a minute, they didn't fulfill God's will. And yet God even turned that for good, did he not? Because 
he turned this city then into the appropriate place for David to be king. Does that mean that David willed that the Jebusites not be defeated? That David will, I'm sorry, that God willed that the Hebrews not capture Jerusalem? No, he told them to capture the whole land to drive out all the Canaanites. And, and had they done that, God would have worked another way to provide David with Jerusalem or whatever capital he, he chose. But God turned even their failure into success uh, in this as we see. Verse 6 of this passage includes the taunt that the Jebusites issued to David. They said, David, the lame and the blind amongst us could defend this city against you. That's what we think of you. <laughs> Reminds me later on of Sennacherib when he came up to the uh, city of Jerusalem and he was going to try to take the city. He told Hezekiah, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you have 2,000 men who can even ride them. You know, kind of a deriding, uh, you know, derogatory statement. And of course, he paid the high price for such a statement. It's the same kind of an attitude here. The Jebusites believed that their position was so strong that David couldn't possibly capture the city. But we read in verse 7 that nevertheless, it says, David captured the stronghold of Zion. <laughs> Not even, I mean, even the layman blind could keep you out, nevertheless. David captured the city. Verse 8 gives us a rather enigmatic statement as to how the city was captured. David issued a challenge to his men, so, so we have. Verse 6, the taunt. Verse 7 says the city was captured. Verse 8 goes, goes on to tell now how the city was captured. So verse 8 really precedes verse 7 in terms of chronological sequence. And uh, David says there to his men, he said, Whoever goes up to capture the city, capture it through the water tunnel. The water tunnel. Hmm. Well, let me put back the map of, of the city of Jerusalem itself, uh, of the Jebusite city of Jebus at that particular day. You'll notice that up in the north corner, the northeast corner of the city here, that right out here you have a spring. It's called the Spring of Gahon which runs at the base of the Ophel, which is this swelling, this hill on which the city of, of Jerusalem was built. And the spring was a natural spring that flows continuously. Its volume does change from time to time. Uh, we've walked through the, the Hezekiah's tunnel two or three times, and uh, each time the water level has been a little different, but we've never walked through it when it's been waist high, as some have. A walk through it, but that's a tunnel that was, of course, didn't exist yet at this time. The Hezekiah's tunnel was built underneath here at, at a later date. Well, of course, in the reign of, of Hezekiah, who reigned in the 8th century. But this, the spring provided the water for the city of Jebus. They had dug a tunnel from the, inside the town down underneath the ground to intersect the spring. And then, of course, the spring was closed off from the outside, from the valley of Kedron, which is this valley here. This is the Kedron Valley here, which separates Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is over here to the east. This was the primary source of water for the city of Jebus, or Jerusalem. It was a more or less vertical tunnel. It had some angle to it because the spring was actually outside the walls. But how did David know about this? How did David know that there was a vertical shaft that ran down from the city to the spring? Well, apparently there was either a Jebusite who uh, 
became um, a refugee from the city or a spy or someone informed David uh, about this well that went down into the spring at the base of the hill. So what he did was they found the spot and they dug out all the debris and everything that had been put in there to prevent you know, the water source from being easily spotted. And then once they had reached the back, they dug into the ground until they intersected the vertical tunnel that came down. Now, if you go today to the city of Jerusalem and you go to this spot out here on the outside in the Kadron Valley, there is today they've got a, a kind of a stone entrance way and there's a gate across it and you have to get a key in order to get in and stairway that you go down. But as you go in to enter what is called Hezekiah's Tunnel now, where the spring of Gahon no longer comes out, it goes in through the city into the pool of Siloam inside the old city. As you go in there, there's a point where, where you make a turn like this to go into the tunnel and you can see where this vertical shaft comes right down into the spot there. I mean, you can kind of look up. It's all filled in up above, of course, but, but you can see the water tunnel that came down to the spring of Gahon. You can see it even to this day. So they found the water tunnel. The Jebusites didn't know that David's men had found the water tunnel. And apparently Joab led the assault up the tunnel and into the city. I think probably the attack was made at night Sort of like, you remember the old Trojan horse story having to do with the city of Troy and, and they, they towed this big horse in which had troops inside, but they didn't know that. At nighttime, of course, they opened the door and let them in down and supposedly captured the city. Is that how Troy really fell? Well, we don't know, but if you go over there to the side of Troy today, there is a big horse outside the city, so it must be true. <laughs> I think that they penetrated the city probably at night so that the, the, their presence coming up through the well <laughs> would not be witnessed very quickly until they had enough men in the city to actually begin to capture the city in short order. What is interesting, and I mentioned this to you before, is the fact that you have in 1 Chronicles a parallel, pass, parallel passages to 2 Samuel and in First Chronicles, if you turn to the 11th chapter, we have the same account, but just with a, one or two other thoughts that aren't included in 2 Samuel 5. So in First Chronicles 11, uh, reading at verse 4, Then David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is Jebus, and the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, were there. And the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, You shall not enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David had said, whoever strikes down a Jebusite first shall be chief and commander. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, went up first, so he became chief. Then David dwelt in the stronghold, therefore it was called the city of David. And he built the wall all around, from the Milo even to the surrounding area, and Joab repaired the rest of the city. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. David wanted these men to have real energy and to really make the attack into the city uh, a strong assault. And therefore he offered an ascent incentive. He said, the first man into that city who slays a Jebusite warrior, he will be commander-in-chief of the armed forces of Israel. Well, we know Joab had been David's commander of his force of 600. 
Joab, who was his nephew, uh, had served in that position for many years now. But this is a far greater position than sort of a, uh, a raiding band chief. Uh, we're talking about commander-in-chief of all of the armies of now the United Kingdom of Israel. It was a much more prestigious position than just simply the commander of 600 men. And so I think Joab, in order to vindicate himself as a result of the Abner affair, which wherein he had received very bad press, you might say, David himself even dressing him down, Joab made sure that he was the first up that water tunnel and that he drew the first blood of a Jebusite warrior. I think he wanted it to be absolutely clear. He was the greatest warrior in David's army. Once they were in the city, I think that Jebusite resistance rather evaporated quickly. It was a very small city. As I mentioned to you before, we're only talking about 10, maybe at the most 12 acres of land in, inside the walls. And so the, the population would have only been, you know, at, at the very maximum, just a few thousand. And as a result, we're talking about, you know, I mean, David's army probably outnumbered the army within, within the, um, the city itself. And so the Jebusites were quickly destroyed. As soon as the city was in the hands of David, David proclaimed that it was now going to be his national capital. This will be the city of David, the Zion, the stronghold of the kingdom of Israel. Scripture tells us in both passages, in 2 Samuel as well as in 1 Chronicles, that David refortified the Milo. Now there's a little bit of dispute exactly about the Milo, but it seems to have been a fortress in the northern part of the city. I'm sorry, yeah, the, the north, more or less northern part of the city, northeastern part of the city. It is not the citadel of David, which you see today. If you go to Jerusalem today and you look at the modern walls, there's a citadel over here on this side called the Citadel of David. Well, of course, it is not the Citadel of David in the sense of being the historic Citadel of David because David never even had a city over there. Uh, this, this city wall, as I mentioned to you last time, was built much later in time. Uh, Solomon would expand it up here to include the Temple Mount and fortify that area. David would, of course, begin that fortification. But these walls out here were added much later. And the current walls that you can walk on today, and you can walk around most of the walls of the city, are the walls that were built by Suleiman the Magnificent, the uh, Turkish sultan of the early 16th century, who was probably the greatest ruler of the world at that particular time. It's a fascinating period in history, if, if any of you are history buffs, particularly study the early 16th century, because so many things happened then. Not only the Protestant Reformation, but some of the greatest kings in, in the history of the world all ruled simultaneously. It's kind of like, whoa, you know. You read through course of history, and it seems like there's some dull times in history with nothing, nobody really important. All of a sudden, there's a bunch of people at once. At the same time, you wonder, what is this? It's kind of like a gold mine every once in a while that you uh, run into. We're told, though, in, second, in, in, in First Chronicles that... While David was rebuilding the Milo in the north part of the city, that Joab was rebuilding other parts of the city. So apparently he wanted the city to be stronger, more strongly fortified uh, than it was before. Certainly he didn't want anybody else to get in the city the way he got into the city, so that had to be fortified. The water tunnel had to be fortified. 
and probably in the assault there was damage done and so that all had to be repaired. It was going to become a royal city and therefore it had to be made such. The importance of this victory is at least threefold. First of all, David now has a powerful citadel, a powerful fortified city to be the capital of the kingdom of Israel. Saul never had that. Saul's little city of Gibeah, if anybody serious had attacked it, it could have easily have been overwhelmed. It's very small, much smaller even than Jerusalem and much less strongly fortified than, than Jerusalem. And even Hebron itself. Um, Hebron at that time was probably a, a little bit smaller than Jerusalem and, and not as strongly fortified. It's, even though it's on a hilltop position, well, I should say it's not on a hilltop position, but it's, in, it's, it's up in the higher lands of uh, Israel. Uh, it would not have been as powerful a city as Jerusalem in that day. Secondly, he had eliminated an alien stronghold out of the heart of his kingdom. Here was this, fort, this city of Jebus sitting right there with, with Canaanites still living in it, which God had told they were supposed to be out of the land. And he had actually thus further fulfilled the command of God. And then thirdly, the third benefit that came out of this is that he greatly reduced the possibility of jealousy amongst the tribes about where the capital of the kingdom would be by establishing it on neutral ground, on ground that had not belonged to any of the tribes up to that time. And what is interesting is that Jerusalem is actually closer to Saul's old capital at Gibeah than it is to David's earlier capital at Hebron. So he, he can't be faulted as controlling which area. The statement at the end of verse 8, which says that the lame and the blind shall not come into the house, the house meaning the palace or by extension the city of Jerusalem, that, that phrase has to be understood within the context of this passage here in, in 2 Samuel and not viewed as some kind of a generic statement whereby David is prejudiced against people who have disabilities. David uses the term lame and blind for the Jebusites as a pejorative synonym. I mean, that's what he calls them, the lame and the blind, because they had taunted him, saying that the lame and blind amongst us could keep you out of here. So in effect, he calls them all the lame and the blind, you know, because in effect they really were, because they were blind to the truth and they were quickly overwhelmed. Thus, what David is saying, when my palace is built, no Jebusite will ever enter my royal residence. And maybe by extension he meant no Jebusite will ever live inside the city of Jerusalem again. That reminds me of the fact that uh, in the early part of the second century, this is after Christ, the Romans said the same thing about the Jews. They were so tired about the Jewish insurrections. The Jews kept rising up against the Romans, and they finally got really tired of it. And so they threw the Jews out of Jerusalem and forbade any Jew from ever entering the city of Jerusalem or even Judea again. And, and they purged the whole city, and they, they built a pagan temple right on the Temple Mount. And they renamed the city Aelia Capitolina, no longer Jerusalem. And of course, they are the ones, as I've said before, who named the land Palestine after the Philistines rather than Judea or Israel after the people of God. John, when did that ban on the Jews, uh, Jerusalem, do the end? Remember? When did it end? Yeah. Will it be Constantine? 
that's probably true. There would have been no reason to end it before Constantine. So probably, I, I, I don't know specifically, but during Constantine's reign, of course, he became very, well, he became very pro-Christian. Christians weren't always very pro-Jew, but since his mother, Helena, went over to the Holy Land and started identifying all the holy sites, it's very probable uh, that at that time, but I don't know for sure. All we know is that the Jews began to come back in force after the concept of Zionism was born in Europe uh, under Theodor Herzl in the latter part of the 19th century. And then they began to start returning to the land in greater numbers. And of course, uh, by, there were already Jews there before that, and even living in Jerusalem before that. But that's a fascinating story in and, in and of itself. We know that David had no feelings against the lame and the blind because you remember Jonathan's only living son was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was lame, and David brought Mephibosheth into the royal palace and housed him and fed him there for the rest of his life. And so obviously, uh, David had not made any broad statement against people of disability. Think about this now. What a glorious time was this for David. After years of persecution, he finally was crowned king over Israel. He had eliminated a pagan stronghold from the midst of the promised land, and he had established what in effect was the ideal seat for his government. I think had David known Romans 8.28, he would have said, Amen and Amen. All things have worked together for good. Because after all these difficult years, it, fruition of God's promise had occurred. He could look back and he could, just, he could have just traced the history of how he had to flee from Saul and, and he fled in the wilderness and, and he lived in this cave and he lived in that cave and he had to keep dodging David, uh, Saul's army. And then he had been given a little town, the little frontier village of Ziklag, which we've noted before down here and he had favor with the Philistine king of Gath. And then we know that he became crowned king of, of Judah, and uh, he was given the fortified city of Hebron as, as his capital. And now, finally, he is crowned king of Israel, and he will build his own royal palace in his own city, which he calls the city of David. How, better, how much better could it be? From his perspective, how much better could it be? Both verse 10 of this passage in 2 Samuel and uh, verse 9 of the passage in 1 Chronicles states that from this point on, David became greater and greater because the Lord of hosts was with him. David became greater and greater because the Lord of hosts was with him. Think of what Saul missed. What a powerful example of the true source of greatness. The true source of greatness. Think back through the pages of history, if you can, and how many kings, emperors, mighty queens can you think of who are remembered positively? And most of us don't remember back and think of Genghis Khan very positively, or Attila the Hun, or Adolf Hitler, or most of the Caesars. We, we, have, we have a negative thought about most of these people. 
And yet when we think back of David, we think of him as a mighty king who ruled by the hand of God and he ruled for good. And God was glorified through this man. Well, let's read, read on in, in the next passage here. It's a very interesting passage. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, this is 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 11. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, the word Tyre means rock, sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a house for David. And David realized that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. Meanwhile, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shammua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Elida, Elavalet. Interesting list of individuals. Most of those names, by the way, are very positive names. For example, Shamua means heard, and the implication is by God. And Shobab is the only one with a bad name. And is this a name that came to him later because of what showed up in his life? The word means apostate, someone who turns back, turns away. Was, is this prophetic? Nathan, of course, wonderful name God gives. Solomon, his peace, meaning God is his peace. Ibhar, he chooses, meaning God. Elishua, my God is salvation. Nepheg, we don't know. Nobody seems to know the origin of Nepheg. Japhia, to shine forth. Actually, the name of a Canaanite king. But, you know, even names of bad people can be used good. I mean, Adolf isn't always used for bad people, you know. <laughs> even though I don't know very many Jezebels, do you? <laughs> Or Judas's, you know, for that matter. Elishama, my God hears. Ileada, God knows. And Eliphalet, my God is deliverance. So you see in this, this, this constant reference to God in, in even the naming of his sons. It would seem in, this, in the first part of this passage that David's first diplomatic coup was to earn the recognition of a foreign power, the formal recognition of Hiram, king of Tyre. There's a little bit of argument about this, though. Not that Hiram did what it says. Here's Tyre up here on the coast. Um, the argument is that some say that Hiram actually lived or, or didn't come to the throne until 20 years into David's reign. Well, what that would mean, of course, is that this passage is leaping ahead, if, if that is true and that David doesn't even build his royal palace until he's more than halfway through his reign, which is, it is you know, quite possible. Could have settled into whatever was the official residence of the king of Jebus for a while before he uh, rebuilt it. Uh, others, of course, argue that, well, there's a statement in history that is kind of a rule of the thumb. Once you get to 500 B.C., when you go back beyond that, beyond 500 B.C., dates become much less certain and can be as off as far as a hundred years as you start going back in time. Because unfortunately, so much of dating is based on archaeology 
and pottery and things like that rather than written records. So, you know, there, there's, there's room for a little bit of movement here. We don't even know absolutely for certain, certain the exact dates of David's reign. Pretty close to the proximate dates. But whatever the case is, Hiram here uh, acknowledges David as king over united Israel and offers him these benefits. It's a very important recognition for Israel to receive. In those days it was important to be officially recognized just as it is today to be officially recognized as the legitimate government, the de jure government of a, of a land. It's important to note though the city of Tyre here was along with Sidon up to the north here. Uh, these were great seafaring cities. The, the Phoenicians, uh, the word Phoenicia means uh, basically red men uh, because of the dye which, for which they were famous, uh, dye which they get from a sea mollusk, uh, kind of the royal, royal purple color. They sold that dye all over the Mediterranean world and these people were a great seafaring people and were very wealthy and very powerful and very closely related to the Canaanites actually in terms of both their language their ethnicity and their religion. Phoenicia would grow to be a very, very significant power in the first millennium before Christ. The Phoenician ships would travel out into the Mediterranean world. They would rival the Greeks in international trade in the eastern Mediterranean and then they would go clear to the western end of the Mediterranean and some say the Phoenicians may have even sailed out through the Straits of Gibraltar which they called the Pillars of Hercules in those days and may have gone as far as England. Or some say they actually circumnavigated Africa in the seventh century before Christ. Well, maybe. Some have actually said they have discovered Phoenician artifacts in Brazil, of all places. Well, they were great seafaring people. Did they actually sail to Brazil? Well, God only knows. And when we watch the great video in eternity, <laughs> God, let's replay that part. <laughs> I want to see it again. <laughs> Maybe we won't care. I don't know. I hope we care. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll then find out. But what they did do was in the ninth century before Christ, about a hundred years after David uh, passed off the scene or somewhere around there, maybe 200 years, they established a city in North Africa called Carthage. Carthage was built in what is today modern Tunisia right directly south of Rome. And that would become the greatest city of the Mediterranean and would challenge Rome for supremacy of the Mediterranean Sea. And in the third century before Christ would, would lose and Rome would win. I've, I've thought about this uh, for some time and wondered what would the world have been like if Carthage had defeated Rome in the great Phoenician wars of the third century before Christ? What would the world be like? Because how much of our, especially our Western society, is based in Roman uh, institutions and, and in, in Roman literature and Roman Latin language and everything else. Uh, the Phoenicians were, you know, worshipers of Baal. No, I'm not saying the Romans were good guys. I mean, they worship all kinds of gods too. Uh, they were pagan in either way. Would the Phoenicians been as willing, uh, the Carthaginians, as willing to sort of allow Christianity to develop within their empire? Well, of course, God is sovereign as we read in Psalms today, so God would have used it in any direction. But I think in some ways, even in this, we can see the hand of God uh, preparing. You know, in Galatians 4.4, 4, it tells us that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, 
God had prepared the moment for his son to come uh, by the guiding hand, his hand through the course of history. Hiram sent to David some lumbar cut from the famous cedars of Lebanon. He also sent carpenters and stonemasons to help construct a suitable royal palace for David. This was a wise decision on Hiram's part. I think not only because maybe Hiram heard what kind of a good king David was, but notice where Phoenicia is. It's along the coast here. There's no real depth to the country. It's pretty much between the Lebanon mountains and the sea. The Phoenician coast came, pretty much came down to Mar Mount Carmel here, and the Philistines occupied the plain to the south. So you'll notice David's king, um, um, Saul's kingdom was landlocked. Saul's kingdom had no coast. And that's what David inherited. Now David will conquer many areas of the coast. He will drive the Phoenicians back to just a small little hunk of the coast here, and he will take all of this here and down and here, um, and, and even will penetrate out to the coast here during the times of David and Solomon. But the Phoenicians, look, Tyre, what's behind Tyre? Northern Israel. Well, if you've got another people in the hills behind you, and you've only got a narrow plain on the coast, you want them to be friendly people. Now, that's part of the argument today why the Jews want to hang on to the West Bank here. They don't want the Palestinians just to have the whole West Bank because the West Bank cuts out so far that the strip that the Jews would have left along the coast would be very, very narrow and easily penetrated by tanks rolling down because slice right across. Tel Aviv is only 10 miles from the border of the West Bank. You know, that's indefensible. And so you can understand why they would want, he would want to be sure that the people behind him here were friendly to him. And of course he would want to generate trade as well because they were a great trading people. This recognition by a king, a, a, a powerful king, and these gifts certainly could have tempted David to consider his greatness, to say, well, I really am a great king, aren't I? I have this, this, this great fortified city, and I have this kingdom, and I have all these wives and all these kids. I, I, I really am a pretty, pretty significant person here. However, we discover in verse 12, David kept everything in proper perspective. He realized that it was only by God's power that he had gained the kingship at all. He had not gotten it by his might, but by God's might. God had not exalted him for his sake, but for the sake of his people. He had not been made king of Israel because of his abilities or of his worthiness, but in order for the Lord to accomplish his kingdom purposes. Do we always know what God's kingdom purposes are? Sometimes things seem to go very awry in our lives. And we think, oh man, you know, I'm making bad mistakes or the devil's getting the upper hand here or something. And not realizing that God is using things that don't seem so good to us at the time for his ultimate kingdom purposes. Certainly David felt that way as he was chased all over the countryside by Saul. And got himself trapped in this by his own doings and in, in mixed up with the Philistines. And I think this is something that we need to remember. Anytime we may receive an honor, anytime we may receive a responsibility, to whom must we turn? To whom must we give credit? We don't dare take credit for our, ourselves. Oh yes, I really am a great whatever it is. We, we, we have to be, that's why people with, with great talent 
have to be particularly careful because it's pretty easy to start thinking that we're great because we have this great talent, not realizing the talent came from God and that it's only used for good by God's, by God's doing. Being humble is not an easy thing. Maybe more for some of us than for others, but for David, humility was one of his great attributes. However, we notice in this passage that his ongoing weakness did show up again. He added more women to his harem. And over the years, more children would be born to him. It's interesting when you go back through the pages of history and, and you read the lives of some of the great rulers of history and discover how many children they had. So many they wouldn't even know kid was brought before them. They'd say, well, who are you? You know, not even knowing their own, like Brigham Young, who had 50 some odd kids, you know, and he wasn't even a king. He was just a Mormon leader. Of the sons named in this list, the first four are the sons of Bathsheba. Now, we haven't even gotten, of course, to the count of Bathsheba yet, right? But, of course, the writer of her Samuel, 2 Samuel here, knows the whole thing before he writes this down, and so he's including the list of boys even before these boys are born in the chronological record here. And, of course, the fourth in that list, Solomon, will become the greatest. And, of course, his start was very inauspicious. Fourth son to a woman that David had married out of fornication. Mm. Doesn't sound like a real good start. But nevertheless, this would be the great king who would follow. The chronicler, if you read the parallel passage in Chronicles, you discover the list is pretty much the same, except there are a couple of names that aren't in this list. So apparently when the, the author here of 2 Samuel wrote it down, he skipped a couple of boys. And uh, some of their names are a little bit different, but you have to always remember that whenever you're reading these Hebrew names in English, they're being translated out of a language that just uses consonants uh, without any vowels. And you just have little vowel points, and mostly they're gone. And so it's, it's kind of a, a guess a little bit as to exactly what the, the name might be. So here we have David. He's established his capital. Jerusalem is the city of David. And of course, we know how important that name becomes in the subsequent prophetic writings and then on into the New Testament because Jesus would be born as son of David. And so God elevated this man as a type of Christ and provided for him the position that would give honor to those that would follow him. And of course, many couldn't understand how Jesus, as the son of David, could be such a radical rebel, you know, from, from particularly the Pharisaic point of view. But there were many sons of David who were rebels, and we'll be later on be talking about two of David's literal direct sons who were rebels against their father and died horrible deaths as a result. David was a man of great honor, a man who gave us great example, but clearly a man with feet of clay. And I think that just helps us to understand how that God can use us, no matter how weak we may feel, how impotent in our lives we may seem to be from our own perspective. If we've dedicated ourselves to, to the Lord, because that is David's great strength, 
He kept giving himself to David, to, to the Lord. In fact, as we go on to finish this chapter, we're going to see that when the enemy comes, he doesn't say, well, I am the great king of Israel and I have this great army. I'm just going to go out and beat them. He goes to God and says, shall I fight them? And how shall I fight them? Every time he seeks God. This is the great strength of David. He has his failures. He has his weaknesses, but his strength is submission humility before God, and we know that even in his greatest of all sins, he writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Do not remove thy Holy Spirit from me. And I think that's the real secret to a walk of faith, being a man of prayer and a man of God's word, a man or a woman of prayer and a man or woman of God's word. And that's what David was. Well, next Sunday, we're going to look at the first major international problem that David had to defend his kingdom.